Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm here with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shally Meng. In 2022, the global sports betting market reached a record high of $83 billion and is expected to expand at a compound 10% per year until 2030. A large contributor to this phenomenon is sports analytics, where individuals and companies can use data to get an edge on the competition. This month, we get the privilege of sitting down with Michael Schwimmer, a former Major League Baseball player and founder and CEO of Big League Advantage, and Mark Glickman, a senior lecturer in statistics at Harvard University and head of Harvard's Sports Analytics Lab, to get the scoop on today's sports analytics field. What metrics do companies and researchers use to predict the next big winner? How does an aspiring data scientist break into the sports industry? What are some changes that die-hard fans can expect or hope for? Stay tuned for all of this and more on the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. So, Michael, I want our listeners to have an idea before we dive into the data science of what Big League Advantage is. What does your firm do? What is the goal of what you all are doing in baseball? Sure. So our goal is to help as many athletes as we possibly can. You know, my background is a former uh, professional baseball player, spent a little over two years in the major leagues with the Phillies and the Blue Jays. Wasn't a very good player, but I got there at least. And I saw the, you know, the struggles of minor league players and how hard it is to get there. Less than 10% of minor leaguers will play one day in the major leagues. It's really hard. Who makes it? Who doesn't? A lot of it's luck and people trying to get themselves in the best position they can. And it's no secret, the more money you have, the more likely you are to make it. There's always more that you can invest and spend in yourself to give yourself the best chance. If you look at some of the best athletes, you know, around LeBron James, Tom Brady, I mean, these guys are spending millions of dollars a year investing in themselves. Um, Unfortunately, not every player has that uh, opportunity. But uh, the idea is, you know, we are a company that is a data analytics company that builds models to try to forecast and predict future value of players, and then we invest in those players accordingly. So we give players upfront money uh, in exchange for a future share of their MLB earnings. If they don't make it, they keep all of it, right? There's no risk there. Um, If they do make it, then they would share a percentage that they're comfortable with, all the way from 1% to 15%. And it's the player's choice of whatever they want to do, whatever they're comfortable with on that end. Um, So we've signed 530 players in football, basketball, and baseball. We're getting into hockey soon, and it's it's been quite a ride over these last seven years. So I have to follow that up with, you know, you use these models. What data do you use to predict whether these players are going to make the majors or not? What are we looking at here? So there's a variety of different data sources that we use. Um, And sports data, you know, it's different than a lot of data you're used to in academia, uh, where, you know, if you're working for Google, Facebook, Uber, these trillions of rows of these perfectly clean data sets that you're making these beautiful predictions on, Sports data, it's the opposite. It is small sample size, dirty data, you know, inputs that are not accurate, uh, players' names, just the mapping of players' names in different data sources and getting unique, unique IDs is, is, a, is a process in and of itself. Um, so you're dealing with these types of data sets, these types of data sources, and then the real secret sauce is what actually matters, right? You know, there's all these statistics out there, these all these numbers. Well, what actually matters. And for us, what we find, it's the process-driven data far more than the result-driven data. Um, So for example, if there's two players and one player, you know, is batting and he's 100 for 100, gets 100 hits in a row, which is obviously extremely rare, and another player is 0 for 100, doesn't get a single hit, 
it's possible that we will invest in the second player, not the first. If the second player is hitting 115 mile an hour line drives right in the center fielder's glove, right? That's a far more predictive of future success than somebody that's 100 for 100 with 100 broken bat lucky hits that just somehow find a hole. You know, we know that that's not predictive, you know, of future success. So it's really the domain knowledge combined with these brilliant data scientists we have at BLA, um, you know, to figure that all out. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, I want to follow up with Mark. Mark, first tell us a little bit about the Harvard Sports Analytics Labs you lead. Right. So the Harvard Sports Analytics Lab is the umbrella for all sports analytics projects that we're aware of. And, you know, we're basically set up as a research unit where we're working on um, different, different projects in sports analytics. So just to follow up on that more specifically, that I know you also have done work, kind of similar venture with the NFL, game scorings, right? And I think Michael's uh, team's firm is more working on the analyzing personal careers of individuals. You're more focused on the team scorings. Uh, obviously, both are related to each other, but how does it differ in terms of statistics and you know data science? You know, the, the kind of work that I specifically do is involved in measuring team ability in, in head-to-head matchups or in, in races and so forth. And, you know, there's some interest in being able to make sense out of individual player abilities within games. In fact, um, I was just advising a PhD student who completed her dissertation on um, essentially the contribution of individual players uh, on head-to-head team sports, uh, taking a very a different sort of approach than is usually taken. The usual approach that's taken is essentially to examine individual player statistics and their direct contribution, where the approach that we're taking is a little bit more indirect. It's a little more inferential, where you you essentially look at entire game scores and you see who's on the team, and you're essentially going to back out which players are contributing the most or to some substantial extent to what the overall uh, score is going to be. It's a very different sort of approach. What I find interesting about the approach that Michael's describing is that it sounds like it goes a little beyond, you know, just simply applying standard statistical tools. It sounds like, you know, there are situations where something might arise from, you know, some statistical investigation of individual players. But then once you start digging into the details, the ones that may not show up, in ordinary data analysis, that's when you start really learning, you know, specific details. So, for example, in this example that you were describing with, um, you know, players' batting averages, you know, one being ridiculously high and the other being ridiculously low. You know, once you start digging in, you start finding other important factors. Some aspects of their physicality may override some of their um, performance. You know, is something that probably a statistician on their own wouldn't necessarily used as a jumping point, but somebody who's kind of in the field and doing this kind of work would say, look, you have to pay attention to these idiosyncratic details. Absolutely. And there's two things uh, that I want to touch on. You know, when you're looking at the modeling we do for the investment side, it's very, very different than who's going to win a game and forecasting by how much, because what you're trying to figure out is, okay, this player in high A, how is he at 18 years old? How is he going to perform at 23 in the major leagues? 
right? Not how is he going to perform in this one game against this one pitcher that's, you know, throwing these pitches, here's the spin rates, and how is he going to perform in this one at bat? So these are completely different exercises. Now, you know, as a company, we actually do both. So we do uh, work a lot with teams. We do Duke basketball, Alabama basketball. We're just now into the soccer space. So we do a lot of uh, work NFL teams and NBA teams as well. And the modeling you have to use for that is completely different. Like you would think like, oh, we can just build off the platform that we had and, and it's just not. Now, I have a theory that if you can best predict the outcome of a game, you know more about what it takes to win that game than anybody else. Because you can then reverse engineer that and say, okay, if these players are on the floor, if you run these types of plays, you're more likely to win. And that's where you get these analysts on TNT. You got Charles Barkley trying to predict something, or you have someone that can actually predict it better. Well, who's going to be able to reverse engineer that and help your team win games? And I would argue, Mark and your group, data science folk are going to be able to do that you know, much better. Now, implementing that, I think you need the Charles Barkleys of the world. You need people to communicate to the players and understand the philosophy. So it's not one or the other. To me, you know, that's kind of how I see the, the mix of sports. It's really the data scientists helping understand how do we best win these games and then the sports people being able to articulate and explain it to the players and get that execution from them. Yeah, and these players also are much more in tune with what really matters. I mean, no matter what you end up looking for in data analyses, you're likely to overlook something if it's not specifically directed at the sorts of things that really matter. One of the you know sort of classical things in in any kind of statistical analysis is that if you know if you're just performing some kind of predictive modeling, you know you may throw the kitchen sink at it, but that's not going to really give you all the power to be able to figure out specifically what is the detailed explanation, unless you have some idea what to focus on, and then you're able to have much more of a chance at uncovering it. And that's where you know the Charles Barclays, you know those are the sorts of people who. Uh, you know, provide the guide to say, you know, what are the important things to be looking for? It is a symbiotic relationship, I think. You know, when I first heard, Michael, what you were doing, my first reaction is like a lay thought was, oh, Moneyball, which is obviously totally different than what you're doing, because Moneyball was about making a team win that <laughs> game. I, I, that's my understanding of it, um, versus what you're doing is taking a player and saying, what's my prediction that they're going to be in the major mm -hmm. leagues? And so given that, what do you, short-term and long-term success look like? And how good are you guys at predicting this? How good are your models at figuring this out? So two parts there. There are a lot more similarities to the Moneyball approach. The difference is their dependent variable, right? Our dependent variable at BLA is going to be how much can a player earn, right? That's what we're trying to solve for and all the different you know ranges and variables. Now, what teams are trying to solve for is how much value we can get for a price, right? That's not too dissimilar to what we do. It's not like just who's going to win one game. So what they were doing with the A's and the Moneyball errors, looking at minor leaguers, who do we trade for? Because they're going to get future success in the major leagues at a cheap price, right? So the difference is just that cheap price factor. So all you do is you take the, our type of modeling, factor in a market level price, and then you get the answer. So the results are going to be very different. Like for us, we may want a power hitter that hits a lot of home runs that may not be very good because we know home runs get paid more than a better player necessarily. Now there's obviously a very direct correlation, but it's not perfect. Um, and that's where it, it could be different. And so that's kind of answering the question on the money ball side. How good are we at predicting uh, modeling? I think our first fund, the, the best stat that I can tell you is the first fund we invested in 77 players 
Of those 77 players, 83% were outside the top 300 prospects when we invested in them. Okay, meaning almost you know nobody's. Remember, I told you less than 10% play one day. That includes your first round pick. So we're talking 83% outside the top 300 prospects, and we have our over our 50th of the 77 get to the major leagues. This is about 10, 11 standard deviations away from the norm. So that kind of shows you. Yeah, either we're getting hit by lightning like three times in a row in three separate days or we're on to something. Now, again, just because you get to the major leagues doesn't mean you're paying you know, money back that we give you, right? You got to play three, four, five years. That becomes a lot harder, right? You know, again, it's, it's what put us on the map and it's what's led us to all these other opportunities in, in the world of sports. Well, whatever puts on the map probably is already of great interest to many individuals who are say, engaged in sports gambling. And uh, there are such things which I actually know nothing about, but I'm going to just ask the question because obviously people would uh, think that, you know, all these algorithms or either statistics or machine learning algorithm can help them to do whatever they want to. So the question then, of course, most individuals are not like you or Mark, you know, they don't have uh, the sophistication, they don't have a team to work on those things. The question then is whatever you're doing, uh, is there any advice for these uh, average person who uh, wants to engage in such activity? Is there anything that uh, they will feel being inspired or um, help them to win, so to speak? So it's hard. I mean, tell you, it is hard. You know, we have a group of 47 people, majority data scientists working on this stuff. We do do predictions of games and we do look at it compared to the market, which the market is, of course, the spread, Vegas line, et cetera, on the sports betting world. You know, we do consistently win, but over the last five years, I've yet to see anybody that can consistently win, not saying it doesn't exist, but that can consistently win without a strong model. And it's also hard to have it one or two people. And the problem in the industry is when you are good at sports betting, the sports books are allowed to shut you out. This is wild to the rest of the world, right? So for example, we as a company, we are not allowed to bet in the United States. No sports books will take any of our bets. So it's like, yeah, how do you make money off this, right? Even if you are good, it's really hard to maintain and be successful and deal with only tier one operators. We're not talking about bookies. We would never do any of that stuff you know, as a company and that stuff. I do not promote any illegal activity. I want to make that very clear. But I also, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Be creative. You're out there and you're trying to look at this stuff. And like, I started in college in 2005 looking at Ken Palm and trying to see, hey, what are their score differentials and can this win in betting? That's how I started doing this. Uh, and it, it turns out that there's next to no correlation. But uh, <laughs> in fact, there could, be a, there could be a reverse correlation. I don't want to discourage anyone from doing it. You should try it. That's how you learn. That's how you get better. And that's how you can apply it in different areas. But it's really, really, really hard. Start with a very, very small bankroll if you want to do it and know that if you're betting, you assume you're going to lose the money before you're going in. And that way, you know, it's entertainment value and you're going to give it a shot. Yeah, to follow up on what uh, Michael was saying, I think there's a, a, probably a general principle, which is to find arbitrage opportunities. Um, and I think that's, you know, pretty much I'm all gambling or even, frankly, investing. If you're expecting to outperform other people, you need to find opportunities that are, you know, aspects of the problem that other people aren't seeing and that you're taking advantage. In fact, that's exactly what happened with, uh, with Billy Bean and Moneyball. I mean, people were not paying attention to on-base percentage as a, a, a much more important measure over usual box score measures. You know, I mean, going forward, 
you know, the kinds of things that are much more exciting and successful are the aspects of gambling where you're actually performing, you know, interesting analyses of data, predictive modeling, taking advantage of, of information that people, other people either don't have or don't know how to take advantage of. And, you know, these days, uh, since the data is just getting to be so much more granular, um, you know, the direction really is in using very fine level data, player tracking data. At, at this point, I think we're, we're now at the point where we're starting to talk about like three-dimensional data, you know, putting uh, different wearable technologies on people where you're not just simply, you know, seeing what their velocity or acceleration is, but like what their physical movements are. And so those sorts of things are going to make even better opportunities for predictive modeling and, and taking advantage of them. Now, that's not anything that, you know, the casual gambler is likely to be uh, making a whole lot of use of, but, you know, you can be sure that pretty serious players in the sports industry are part of this direction of technology and are, are likely to be continuing to take advantage of it. Can I add one, one thing to this is to show you how hard this is. Because of the juice or the vig that the sports books take, in order to break even, you need to win 52.38% of the time assuming the bets equal both ways, minus 110, risking 110 to win 100. So 52.38% is break even. We as a company have been doing this for over five years and have, again, dozens of people around the clock on this stuff. And we're, we have about a 2% edge. So we pick it like 54.5 roughly in that, in that range over that. And that's just now. It didn't always start out like that, right? And now there could be groups a lot smarter than us. I'm not saying we're the, we're the end all be all. I'm just saying... We have really, really smart folks pay millions and millions of dollars a year for these data scientists to come work at BLA, and we got a 2% edge on the market. You know, it's just very, very difficult. So now someone say, okay, I'm not going to do my own sports betting. That's too hard. But I'd like to join your team. So what does it take, for example, Mike, to be the 48th you know, data scientists on your team get paid a million dollars? <laughs> and what it takes to get Mark your sports you know, club? <laughs> You know, to be part of the sports analytics lab and to do work with us, you know, we set the bar at being a, a researcher, student, affiliate at Harvard. The most straightforward way is apply to our data science master's program or statistics PhD program. And if you get in, you know, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You know, we're certainly, you know, looking for talented people, interested people in, in uh, interesting work and, you know, want to make sure that we do some good work and advance the field forward. A little bit different for me. You do not have to go to Harvard to work at BLA. Constantly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, for us, we've had, you know, certainly well over a thousand candidates apply. We have offered a job to everyone that can pass our assessment. Our assessment is extremely difficult to pass. Now I want to try Come it. Come on, bring it on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think under 40 people have actually passed it to the point where we want to offer them a job. It's a very, very difficult process. Usually the people that we find that are able to pass these assessments are doing so much work on their own. It's not necessarily in the lab. You need to have fundamentals. Of course, you need to have stat 101. Of course, you need to have this type of stuff. But it's, what do you do after that? What do you do on your own? It's usually like, I built all these crazy models for my fantasy football team, or I tried sports betting models that didn't work, but I tried, you know, doing that type of stuff really, really translate. There's a, there's a saying one of our data scientists had, you know, it's like, if you could simplify the type of data scientists we're looking for, 
in a sentence. And I thought he did such a great job. He goes, we're not looking for the cookbook data scientists. We're looking for the jazz musician data scientists. And those are hard to find. I mean, those are hard to find because you've got to be creative. You've got to be innovative way outside the box. Hey, I was taught this method. It didn't work. The data's not here. The data's not clean. I'm going to try this random forest model and I'm going to overlay this on top and blah, blah. And now I get a prediction. It may not even be that great a prediction, but it's a prediction. These are the guys and gals that we end up hiring at BLA. And if you are like that and you are listening, BigLeagueAdvantage.com. Throw, throw it up there. We give everybody a shot, all, all equal opportunity. So uh, if you want if you want it, Please, uh, please try. Well, I can't help but notice that uh, although, you know, I know both are extremely hard to get in, but it sounds like you have a pretty the similar, you know, success rate because the Harvard admission rate is about four or five percent. <laughs> you have like 40 out of a thousand. So we basically say, hey, you, if you're the top five percent, you know, give it a try and everybody else study harder. That's uh, that's advice, I guess. I know. Now I want to give my students your assessment. I feel bad for them. I'm going to give it to them as their final exam. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's it's our assessment's three parts. The first part is just this, you know, classic sponsor. We come in, we can grade it all uh, automated. And then if you get to the second part, we got two or three people. It's a Zoom, and we look at every keystroke you make, and we try to figure out how you solve problems, how you think through problems, right? Then the third step is this full full on, here is a problem that you don't know ahead of time. Like, how would you build a model framework around this? How would you think about this? And it's like, we intentionally, even if they have the right answer the first time, or what we think is the right answer, we'll grill them and like, no, that's not right. You know, like, why aren't you doing this? That's a better approach over here. And like, are they convicted? Do they easily move? There's a huge, you know, process in it. But the take home one, the initial one, you know, is certainly something that can be done in class. The other two parts of it are, you know, a lot more hands-on. Well, I have to say, uh, Michael, that I want to invite you openly on the air to, uh, you know, have writing an article for Harvard Data Science Review about your <laughs> assessment approach, because we do lots of education. I mean, this sounds like the kind of review assessment you need if we can ever mimic that in the education you know, space that we probably produce students a lot more useful. Well, useful for sports and BLA, probably not useful for the Google and the Facebooks of the world, which, which they, they offer more jobs than we do, but that's okay. You know, you know, everyone likes different things. So I appreciate that. And I will take you up on that. Yeah, thank you. What Michael uh, is saying, uh, which resonates a little bit with me, is that, you know, we have all these uh, graduating uh, students with bachelor's degrees. And, you know, it's a pretty common theme that when they start applying for uh, jobs after they graduate, whether it's in sports analytics, in consulting, in finance, that they're they're basically going through a process that you know stretches what they've learned in their undergraduate program to something that's beyond that, that that is sort of pushing them to think and show some evidence that they've gone beyond what they've learned in school, which makes me think that maybe we're not teaching the right things in school to prepare them for these kinds of jobs. But it's the job market is so small for what we try to do. So I don't blame the universities, right? Because there's you know, 10,000 to one more jobs in what you're teaching, right? It's just that in sports, it's just different. And I wish there would be, there should be, you know, if I had my way, there'd be like one class or something like that, where it's like, okay, we want prediction on 38 at bats, this guy, like the tiniest of sample size. How would you go about that? Right? I mean, this is, it's just hard. And it's something that, again, you don't see in a lot of other aspects outside of sports. But I would imagine in politics, or, I mean, there's got to be a lot of other industries where that would be really useful. You know, maybe not the Googles of the world, but there's got to be industries that would really benefit from having students like this. 
I wanted to say that really because it's just like what the Mark mentioned, right? Because things have be- become much more, you know, I use my term called high resolution, much more on an individual basis. You know, I just uh, teach a course yesterday. Uh, the speaker was talking about, you know, per DS, right? What is per DS? Personalized data science. And it's very much like this, right? So I think uh, a lot of things in, at the end of the day, what's of interest in the medicine is trying to predict how each individual patient is going to respond to these treatments, right? And that's not easy at all. And uh, and I think so we probably should really, uh, you know, maybe sports is a better way to motivate the students than the personalized <laughs> medicine. But I think of the principles, all these things will be very similar because everybody's unique. Everybody comes in is not uh, something you have already seen. And how do you deal with that? And I do think, Michael, you're right. Um, we should create a course that's really focusing on these kind of really hard personalized problems, you know, seemingly very odd, but in the real world, every individual is odd in some aspect. So this is very, very inspiring. Thank you. So talking about the future, whether it's the future of students or in this case, the future of sports gambling and sports, you know, there's this huge shift with the technological advances that we have with virtual sports on the rise. You know, where do you sort of see the industry evolving? Where do you see it going? And, and how, they, how the sports analytics would respond to this, the new types of sports that we're seeing, especially virtual ones? You know, I think it's not going to be all positive. I wish this was sunshine and rainbows. I think baseball is such a great example where you had a sport that people started to get smart on how to win, right? How do you win? And guess what? How to win a game of baseball becomes a lot more boring, right? You're getting longer games. No one's putting the ball in play, but this is smart. Teams should, their goal should be doing whatever we can to win games and being as smart as we, and the league's job should be to create rules to make the game entertaining. Right, so people watch and tickets or sales and the sport thrives. And that's where we finally saw baseball about five years too late add a pitch clock and add these things to combat these strategies that are happening. I think a lot of teams, you're seeing basketball, a ton of three-point shots, drive and kick, it's very similar. You know, This isn't the Michael Jordan days. And so I think you're gonna see teams becoming smarter and smarter and smarter and leagues are gonna have to be a lot more progressive and adapt and create rule changes. Basketball is a great, they used to be, you know, you had a five-point lead with four minutes, you dribbled the ball out. And then they're like, all right, let's make a shot clock. And then it was everyone's going in the paint and everyone's playing big man. All right, let's add a three-point line. So they've done some of these things in the past, and I think they're going to have to adapt a lot more, you know, in the coming years as teams get smarter and smarter and it becomes a little bit less entertaining. Mark, do you agree? I mean, I, I, I sort of feel like sports in general is being a little bit more democratized. You know, more people are able to play. I think. Um, you know, once you get down even to like uh, college uh, sports, a lot of the data science ideas are making their way into uh, college sports. And that creates a little bit more excitement for, you know, making teams better and like weaker teams could take a little bit more advantage of, uh, of some of the data science uh, tools out there. So I think it has that impact as well, that more people can get involved in uh, sports and sports training and team sports. So I, I think it's going to just continue to grow. There's the whole world of esports, which, you know, is also uh, taking hold, especially including, on, you know, plenty of online gaming. And data science has also made some, some real push into um, improving uh, player performance in, in esports. So it's no longer just the four major sports anymore. It's a wide open field. And I think there's plenty of opportunity for uh, data scientists in these different areas. 
speaking of you know technology shift and advances you know these days you can't uh, do any podcast or do anything without mentioning ChatGPT or or generative ai <laughs> which we haven't touched so far so i have to bring that in but seriously uh you know how does such generative ai these technologies going to impact for example Mike, your firm are you using those things and uh, and also for mark uh in terms of your analysis you know we obviously in the department we talk about how possibly these can help to do uh, analysis and processing the data and i can see individuals say hey i'm just going to ask ChatGPT which team is going to win you know so just uh, your thoughts um, both of you in terms of you see whether this will be something positive negative or not relevant for bla this is the good part about data being dirty messy and all this stuff is that even the ai can't can't deal with it properly right I see. Uh, <laughs> but um we do use it for a lot of things i mean we want to be progressive we like you know if we're looking for a CFO, I'm going to have ChatGPT help write the, uh, you know, the job description for it, you know, things of that nature. Um, in terms of the pure data science approach, we've tested it a variety of different ways in sports betting and things like that. It's nowhere close. Now, the, it learns at such a fast level that I'm not saying, I, I'm not going to tell you in six months it won't sure, be close. Sure. Um, but as of now, it, it's, it's, not, it's not anywhere close. Now, if you were an individual or someone wanted to build your own model, if you're listening to this and you want some help and maybe could expedite the process, it could be really helpful you know, with that. But for us at BLA as a team with a framework, we're seven years in on this thing. You know, it's not, it's not super helpful yet. Yeah. I would say from um, my angle uh, where, you know, the goal typically is, um, you know, developing methods for analyzing data in various settings, you know, with not necessarily any specific goal, um, you know, it's always going to be problem specific is, you know, generative AI is, you know, just an incredibly, uh, amazing resource for all kinds of different purposes. I mean, it's certainly going to make it a lot easier for most people to analyze data. You know, there's some important tools like uh, Code Interpreter as part of uh, ChatGPT and Notable, and there, there are a whole bunch of different um, apps that work very well with generative AI, uh, large language models, um, that will just make it easier for people that aren't uh, programmers or coders to actually be able to uh, analyze data without actually, you know, knowing very concretely, you know, some of these programming languages. Uh, additionally, it's going to be an incredible uh, resource, I think, for communicating. We have a, a, a couple of us that are working on on how ChatGPT can be very useful for just research, for uh, particularly um, finding appropriate literature, which is also a huge area, and that's particularly relevant for people who want to make sure they're up on the different methods that are used in sports analytics. Like right now, you know, like if you're, you're wondering, how am I able to take all these different game results and be able to, um, you know, say which player is the best? You know, like right now, it's not very obvious what to do, except once you start moving into a large language model that somehow connects to a repository of research articles, you could basically query the repository and say, you know, what are the appropriate methods? Um, you know, tell me, the different uh, articles that are relevant to what I'm trying to accomplish, and you'll end up getting the results. And that's something that you just, you couldn't do before. You couldn't do it with a search engine. The tools that are available now are uh, much more designed to be able to accomplish those kinds of tasks. So I, I think it's gonna be an, an incredible resource going forward. Continuing talking about the future, 
Michael, you've just all announced that you all have bought Leeds United along with, I believe, the 49ers and are moving into soccer, which is a totally different ball game, pardon the pun, mm-hmm. than baseball. So what do you see with soccer that's making you all invest in a whole team to do this? What sort of data resources are you going to bring into this? And what what made you all choose this? First of all, it's the football club of Leeds United. We can't pardon me, beg your pardon. All the people in Leeds in Leeds, England, right now, listening to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I don't want them to be. I don't want them yelling at me on that. Uh, No, it's thank you. (laughs) So it's so exciting. I mean, it's really, really exciting. Data analytics and data science can actually be this great value creator that you don't see in U.S. sports. Yes, data analytics, data science can help you win games. But what does that mean financially to an owner? Guess what? Let me just tell you a secret. The Dallas Cowboys could finish last in the division for five straight years. They're going to be the most valuable football franchise. Just what's going to be, right? Well, in England, okay, if you finish last in your division three straight years, you go from a $5 billion asset to a $10 million asset. And Reverse, right? You can buy a $5 million team and turn them into a $5 billion team, theoretically, because of the relegation promotion system. So what happens is the very top leagues, there's 20 teams in the Premier League, the bottom three get relegated. Well, that market deal, that media deal goes from hundreds of millions of dollars to a few million dollars. Then you can be relegated again. And now you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in media revenue. So winning really matters from a value standpoint. So if you are the smartest group, right? And you have the smartest team, not saying we are, but just in theory, if you are, you can create, you can buy these hundred million dollar assets and turn them into multi-billion dollar assets. And that's why, you know, I'm super, super, super excited. I've always loved European football. It's been, I've been a huge fan for quite some time. Leeds is, you know, from a business standpoint, one of the, it's just a huge club and they just got relegated. So they were in the premier league. They just got relegated. So we get a very good deal financially. We're going to make you know, decisions from an analytical standpoint that I think are going to work out. Time will tell. Um, it's sports, right? There's injuries, there's poor performance, anything can happen. But, you know, I, I want to put as many chips on the right side of the table as we can. And then, uh, you know, hopefully it all ends up working out. Well, I guess, Michael, you probably have just excited a lot of uh, listeners. But no matter how exciting our podcast uh, is, that we always have to end at somewhere. And uh, so we need to uh, wrap it up. And uh, we always end with you know, a uh, magical one questions. So I'm going to ask uh, my uh, magical one question to both of you. If you could change the scoring metrics of any one major sports, what would it be and why? Yeah, I, I have a lot of outside the box ideas. And for baseball, I was trying to, you know, I was, I was a team rep in the players union. I tried to get a bunch of things passed to help the game. It's not necessarily scoring, but it's how you know, the game is being played to incentivize balls in play, incentivize more action. And my theory is an automated strike zone, right, which is probably going to happen with robotic umpires calling balls and strikes. And then giving the pitcher incentive to throw the ball down the middle because hitters want to hit the ball down the middle. So if you there's nine quadrants. I don't know if you've seen it broken down. And if you are able to hit that middle quadrant and the hitter takes the pitch, it counts as two strikes. Therefore, hitters can't be guest hitters sitting on pitches all the time, waiting, waiting, waiting. If that pitch is down the middle and they take it, it's now a second strike for a pitcher. It's going to be a lot more exciting pitchers instead of trying to hit corners, maybe throw balls, might be more incentivized to throw the ball down the middle. You know, a lot more action there. Um, of course, all the traditional baseball people I was laughed out of the room and yelled at, but I am a, um, you know, I've been told I'm a pretty crazy outside the box thinker, and that's something that I would, I think would be cool to implement. 
So I'll, I'll say that um, I have the attitude that, well, there, there's sort of two aspects of it. So if there are any rule changes to scoring, it should be in the direction of making the game more exciting. On the other hand, I also have the attitude that, look, everybody knows the rules going into a game. And so you basically optimize your strategy relative to what those rules are. And so in some ways, like everyone kind of knows what they are going into them and they can keep them as exciting in terms of gameplay as much as possible. So if I'm, if I'm pressed to give a concrete answer, I guess I'm going to switch to chess, uh, which is okay. to say that- the, That's a that major sport. It is, it is a sport. It's Changing a, the rules of chess, I'm excited for this. Well, it, it's, a very, <laughs> it's a very simple idea and it's not an original one. I mean, there have been over the years, plenty of suggestions for basically changing the rules of chess so that there are no draws. Every game is decisive and there are very easy ways to do that. For example, one way to draw a game is to stalemate your opponent, which basically means that your opponent can't make a legal move, but they're not in check. And so you could actually just change the rule to say that actually is a loss for the stalemated player. And likewise, there are plenty of other situations where there are draws in a game, but you can just outlaw them. I partly think of that because at the top levels in chess, I would say... Uh, upwards of like uh, 70 to 80 percent of games end in draws so it doesn't get all that exciting as opposed to lots of other sports like you know hockey and soccer where you know there there's a substantial fraction of games that are draws but not anywhere near you know 70 to 80 percent and then in, in some contexts even like I, i've been playing with a set of data where the um the draw rate is like 95 percent just outrageous and that's not exciting well, thank you. Uh, you know, I have never answered my own magical one question, but now I'm inspired. Right? <laughs> because what uh, uh, Mark, you said is you're almost suggesting that it'd be much, much more interesting if the players, when they come to the game, they don't know which rule will be adopted. <laughs> yeah, so right. Why not we create a randomized rules, right? You say, you know, there's 10 sets of rules. And uh, on the game, you, gotta, you, you flip a coin, you know, you have seen who go first with the coin. Why not at the time flip a, uh, flip a something, roll a dice, say, hey, that's a rule. And, you know, that would be very interesting. That could change the game, how you uh, prepare yourself. You have all these different rules. I'm like not that. sure any of these changes would convince me to watch chess or baseball, but I like the idea Ooh. of them. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, um, hurt. that hurt right <laughs> to my soul. Oh, boy. <laughs> my one baseball game. I like the peanuts. Those are fun. So I have one final magic wand question. We don't usually do two, but we we had to ask this one, especially given sort of where the conversation went during the podcast about bringing in new data scientists or bringing in new academics. So um, if you could give one piece of advice to a young data scientist um, who's either trying to trying to get to Harvard or trying to get to BLA or trying to do whatever they're they're wanting to go do, what would it be? I'll start with this one. I'm very strong on this opinion take chances, take risks. My profession was baseball. So I found a weakness in the baseball system or something that we can, you know, to, to improve it, right? To help players, but it doesn't matter. It could have been in finance. It could have been in medicine. It could have been in whatever industry it is. It, whatever industry you're working on, figure out how it can be better, right? Get the data science background and try to build a model to help it improve and take a chance, take a risk, start your own company do it. And guess what? You're going to fail more times than you're not. But when you fail, you will get so much. I feel like data scientists don't put near enough emphasis on that. If you fail, the information and knowledge you get from failing is going to be way more valuable than sticking it out at some company for that same two-year time frame. So 
I feel like data scientists tend to be, and I work with a lot of them, no offense to the ones that are going to be listening to this, but a lot more conservative in their thinking. And to me, the conservative approach is staying. To me, the conservative approach is just punching the deck, working and, and, and moving on. And I want to preach so much to innovate, create, help the world be a better place. And that's how you do it. You don't just sit there and, you know, and clock things in, is my opinion. So I, I can shift that over to the academic side. It's very similar story to what Michael is saying, but slightly tweaked, which is that if you're going to be applying to a highly, highly selective school, keep in mind that everybody else in the world is going to look just like you if all you're doing is you're just like doing well in your classes, doing fairly standard things. There's going to be no way to distinguish you from anybody else, and that's going to limit your chances of getting into a very selective school like Harvard. What you need to do is you need to take initiative and also trying to get in some kind of leadership roles. You know, any kind of project where you're taking a lead role, basically showing that not only are you driving something that you're interested in, but you're, you're actually doing it in a way where it's not exclusively in the service of someone else, but you're actually being a leader is going to make you that, that much better and probably increase your chances of getting into a very selective school like Harvard. So, Liberty, I'm on a road today. I need. I want to answer your uh, <laughs> magic wand question as well, and just summarize what uh, Michael and Mark said. I think that the simple summary is: getting to Harvard, then become a dropout. <laughs> it's true. Yes, <laughs> empirically, that's actually true. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. This has been fabulous. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the HDSR. A special thanks to our executive producer, Rebecca McLeod, and producers, Tina Toby Mack and Ariane Winfrank. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. Everything data science and data science for everyone.